Sound Design. I'm going to sit right down and write myself a letter. Sound Design Live is produced independently by me, Nathan Lively, in Oakland, California. Welcome to Sound Design Live. I'm your host, Nathan Lively, and today my guest is the owner of Ear Trumpet Labs in Portland and self-described bricolier, Philip Graham. <laughs> Philip, thanks for being here. Hi. Great. Great to be here. I'll go ahead and tell you now that Philip is offering a 10% discount to the listeners of Sound Design Live. So if you go to the show notes for this podcast at sounddesignlive.com, you will find a discount code that you can use on the Ear Trumpet Labs website for buying microphones. So Ear Trumpet Labs makes some kick-ass, handmade, industrial-looking microphones. Each one of them is a little sculpture. So I was surprised that you had actually designed them with live applications in mind. Can you describe what qualities you were looking for when you first started designing microphones? Well, uh, I was initially got into building mics for recording purposes. Um, and the the sculptural qualities just sort of evolved uh, almost by chance, um, just out of the materials that I happened to make them from. Uh, they, they happened to look really cool. But as soon as I realized that, uh, and a couple of them were used in live settings, it immediately became obvious that, that the... Uh, the whole visual aspect really makes sense mm -hmm. for live mics uh, a lot more than for studio mics. That was really kind of the, the genesis of it, was this realization that you could be really visually inventive with the basic idea of a microphone, a microphone body, and that nobody else was, that there really weren't anything, there, there's nothing else out there that, that looks like that, and that... Um, you know, it was this part of live performance that uh, was was sort of a new opportunity for creativity. So that then kind of spurred the acoustic design to make make them actually uh, functionally be really great live mics. I mean, why did you want to build a mic? Did did you have a problem you were trying to solve, or was there some uh, challenge you were trying to overcome? Probably mostly just native curiosity. Can I build it? Mm -hmm. As far as the initial, you know, the first time I, I went about building a mic. Um, but and then uh, spurred by the, I really want something nice that I can afford. Mm -hmm. And, uh, you know, I, I, I do a lot of DIY uh, of different kinds. Uh, but particularly equipment building. And so, you know, the idea that I can't really afford really nice stuff, but I can build pretty darn nice stuff myself was uh, was already pretty familiar to me. And so looking at, you know, trying to upgrade or get better quality mics um, just to do a little, a little of my own recording, that immediately became a, a, a pretty good option for me. So you've, you've already mentioned afford a couple of times. So I think we can go ahead and be transparent and tell people that when you go to the Ear Trumpet Labs website, most of these microphones cost about $500. And I think that's important to point out because other things that I listen to and work with that are in the same quality range are a couple hundred dollars more. And 
even though yours are handmade, I guess that has to do with the fact that the other ones have big names behind them. And so part of what you're buying is, is a brand. And in your case, you're just buying a microphone. <laughs> yeah, I guess. I, I'm still, uh, I guess I'm still trying to figure out the economics of it a bit. You know, I'm, I'm happy with the, the price that I'm able to, to sell them for in terms of, you know, my time and materials. I, I assume that that's a big part of it is, uh, you know, the support of a, of a big corporate structure and, uh, you know, giant R&D labs and this, that, and the other. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, I, I think there are a lot of things in this world that are actually surprisingly inexpensive in terms of both material and, and labor to, to actually put together. What was something surprising that you discovered building this microphone that you thought was going to be a lot more expensive and discovered that it wasn't? It's really, it's really the whole thing. I mean, there, there's nothing particularly expensive in, in the whole mechanism. You know, my, my capsules aren't, aren't terrifically expensive. I guess we can get into talking about that, the specific choice that I made um, in the capsule use for, for most of my microphones. Okay. It's a large, large or, or medium-large diaphragm um, electret capsule. It's a, it's a 26 millimeter capsule. Um, the diaphragm is is somewhat smaller than that, maybe 21 millimeter. So it's uh, you know it's not as big as the the sort of classic studio large diaphragm, 32 or 34 millimeter generally. I don't know if uh, you or your your listeners will be familiar with the the difference in between electret and and uh, externally polarized um, condenser. I don't think capsules. so. If you want to explain, that'd be awesome. Sure. A condenser capsule basically works. It's a very, very simple mechanism. The, the only complexity is that it's got very, very tight tolerances when it's made. It's, it's, it's precise but simple. It's just this stretched membrane that uh, has, a, has a coating on it that's electrically conductive and then a tiny little air gap and uh, a backplate that usually or always has, uh, also has holes in it okay. um, as well. And you put a charge on one, one or the other of those, either the backplate or the, uh, the membrane itself. Um, you put a typically 60 volt plus uh, charge on that, and that is a capacitor, essentially. I mean, uh, the mechan- electrically, that's how you build a capacitor, is you have a, uh, a couple of conductors with an insulator in between them. And so the microphone works because uh, as the membrane vibrates, that distance in the air gap between the two of them varies with, as, the, as the membrane wobbles, and, uh, and that produces a varying capacitance. You can then connect that to a circuit and use that capacitance uh, essentially to generate uh, a detectable voltage that varies you know, as, the, as the membrane wobbles. It's you know pretty simple, pretty straightforward. The electret versus externally polarized thing is just how you provide that charge, that basic charge across the capsule. Um, an electret is a, is a material. I don't understand the details of it, but you know it's one of those sort of magic modern materials where basically you can produce a material that has a, a permanent charge, um, literally baked into it. It's a material that you can you apply a charge to uh, as it's condensing or cooling, mm-hmm. I think, and, and then it 
permanently has that charge. It's just always at a, a potential. An electric capsule just uses that as the backplate. So it always has the charge, and you don't have to do anything in the circuitry of the microphone to try and provide that voltage. Okay, so it's a it's little a, more simple to use? Um, yes, it's, it's definitely simpler to design around. One of the reasons I like it is uh, also that, uh, especially for, for live mics, is uh, um, it's more reliable. You know, it's a, there's a whole another chunk of circuitry that you don't have to have in your microphone. So a, a lot of the, the, the most common studio capsules are all externally polarized. So there's a bunch of, uh, a bunch of circuitry that, um, that basically does the work, um, usually of taking that, the, the phantom power, 48-volt phantom power, and um, jiggering it around to provide the, the 60 to 70 volts or whatever to polarize the capsule. So you need some extra, a, a bunch of tricky circuitry to do that. Mm-hmm. Other than that, there's no actual difference to the functioning of the capsule at all. Um, but electrodes are much easier and cheaper to manufacture in large quantities. All the, the bazillions of microphones out there for commercial uses, cell phones uh, being probably the, the, the biggest enormous use of microphones uh, out there in the world, um, they're, they're all electric, um, very small, tiny little electric condenser capsules. They're pretty easy to make in giant factories and, and crank out by the bazillions. There's a much smaller market, obviously, for um, high-quality capsules up through uh, sort of regular small diaphragm condenser size. And the ones that I use are, I believe, about the biggest, probably the largest that are made at all. And uh, there's a couple of places in China that make them. And they're, they're quite inexpensive to get. The downside to them, the only downside to, to, to using these that I've found is that, um, you know, the quality control on quantity produced stuff, audio equipment, is typically not that great. So I do a whole extra set of quality control on all the stuff that I get, and I end up throwing out 30% or so of the capsules. Not oh, that wow. they're, yeah, not, not that they're terrible, uh, most of them, you know, out of, out of every batch of uh, say 25 or so, which is about what I, uh, what I get them and test them through as, um, there'll be maybe one that's actually a, a bad, bad production capsule. And the rest of the ones that I reject are really just not within my, um, my tolerances. So more than uh, a dB or so out anywhere across the frequency range from what my target um, frequency profile is. Um, I just toss them because I just don't want that inconsistency. Um, and that's a pretty tight tolerance, actually. That's, a, that's actually a lot tighter than, um, you know, if you get high-end studio mics in a stereo pair, a supposed matched stereo pair, the tolerances are actually uh, a lot worse than that. Really? Yeah. I think I'm coming to understand that quality control... It's one of the biggest differences between um, pro audio gear manufacturers because with my meetup group, we recently took a tour of the Meyer Sound Factory and mm-hmm. their quality control is really strict. Even though they build a lot of their own parts, 
They still test all of the end product, and they they test a lot of um, the pieces along the way, and they still throw a lot of things out. So the product coming out of Meyer Sound is a lot more consistent than, say, speakers that you might get from some other manufacturer where everything is just made on an assembly line by robots or something. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, and I think, to my mind, that's the real... um, the real difference or the real advantage. When I describe myself as a, you know, as a hand builder or a craft builder Bricolaire. of microphones, um, I mean, it's really the same thing that the highest, the, the, the big, biggest quality name manufacturers, the, the, the really high-end German uh, mic builders, are essentially doing the same thing. And it, and it really does come down to that. Uh, I mean, that that is the advantage of hand building is that you uh, you're actually paying attention to everything, every step along the way, and everything that goes into it. Mm-hmm. Um, and if you're if you're any good, I mean, any any craftsman that has any uh, uh, you know any pride in his craft at all is is sort of constantly QCing as he goes. You know, it's like oh that. Part didn't quite mill out quite correctly. Oh well, you know, I'm going to toss it because that's that's just my level of craft. I, mm-hmm. I don't do that. Or you know, or you you correct it, you fix it in place as you go. And you say, ah, that's not quite right. That needs a little bit more of a touch up here or there. Or um, you know, I, I need to deburr that a little bit better. Or, you know, uh, that's the that's the physical stuff. The the circuit building, circuit design, same way. You know, you're, you're Looking at every every uh, every wiring joint as it's made, you're you know you're soldering it and inspecting it as it goes, um, and that's the you know you look at the the Neumann factory is a bunch of uh, hand building processes really. Now you don't I didn't see any matched pairs for sale on your site, but could you provide those if people ask for them? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. You can find relevant links and more information about today's interview by using the search box on sounddesignlive.com. While you're there, pick up the Sound Design Live ebook with the best material from my first two years of interviews with audio industry leaders. So, can we talk about feedback? Oh, sure. Thinking about. Uh, <clears throat> Miking, miking instruments, miking uh, singers on stage. Um, could you give us some tips for setting up a stage for the highest possible gain before feedback, and talk about how your mics help with that? Yeah, turn it down. <laughs> <laughs> Everyone on in-ear monitors, go. Uh, yeah, there are no magic bullets. There, there really aren't. Um, I don't know that I can say an awful lot that that uh, any decent live engineer doesn't already know if they've been paying attention. Uh, yeah, uh, volume is um, volume is your enemy. When I set out, uh, as far as a, a, a solving a problem, trying to solve a problem um, with my mics, it's primarily to provide better quality sound and than to beat back the the feedback issues as well as I can while maintaining what I think of as as nice sound quality. So what have you done to beat back the feedback issues then? 
Yeah, the the main things, well, really, frequency response control. I mean, I, I the 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 condenser capsules have a more extended high end than your typical dynamic, mm-hmm. um, but not tremendously so, and especially the larger diaphragm ones, um, small diaphragm condensers. Um, by their nature, will have better high-frequency extension. Um, and so part of the reason just for using that medium diaphragm is both, both I really love the sound of this particular capsule, and it has a more of a natural uh, high-end roll-off in the very high frequencies. Um, and then I actually tweak the circuit to control that as well, to, to bring that down. There's a, a natural high frequency bump for all cardioid capsules that's more or less pronounced um, depending on the capsule design. Um, in some of my designs, a few of my designs, I, I actually add a little bit of acoustical damping mm-hmm. to the the back of the capsule themselves. So it's not modifying the internal construction of the capsule, but it is pretty directly uh, making a small alteration to um, to its frequency response and, and polar pattern. Okay. And that's that's the main thing that uh, that I try and pay attention to. Um, the, the, the main ways to control it are th- are really through the positioning of the capsule in the head basket and the head basket design itself. Um, that provides most of the tone and quality f- between different microphones. Um, it's maybe surprising to a lot of people, but it makes a lot of difference. Really? Um, when you talk about the sound that different microphones have, mm-hmm. the vast majority of it, I think, comes, comes from that. Um, and they're, you know, they're relatively subtle differences. And it, it's not really very predictable. I wouldn't call that part engineering, really. It's more of a black art and a, a lot of trial and error. You just sort of wiggle things around and try things in different positions and put, you know, dampers in different places in the head basket and just keep trying it out and, and run it through frequency tests and polar plots and, and until you start to see some changes that, uh, that go in the direction that you would like. You know, so from my end, I, I think controlling the high frequencies um, overall and in particular controlling them in the polar pattern. If you look at the polar plot for most microphones, you know, that beautiful, perfect little heart-shaped cardioid, um, that's at 1K. Relatively few people pay much attention to the plots at other frequencies or actually even note the frequencies that they're, you know, you'll often see them reported on a couple of other frequencies, but very rarely above like 8K. You you almost never even see a 10K plot on there. Um, And that's because the the pattern gets much harder to control at high frequencies. Um, And is it more erratic at higher frequencies or is it just tighter? It varies. It it tends tends to go much more hypercardioid. So even in a cardioid, you'll, you'll have a high frequency lobe out the back. And then as the frequency response goes down, it gets more omnidirectional, right? Yes. Okay. Yeah. So, you know, in my mic design, um, I mean, really aiming them for live use, I also roll off the lows a, a fair amount. Well, largely to, just to deal with proximity effect. I mean, they're, they're meant to be, they need to be used closer than a studio mic would be. Or, and with large diaphragms, the larger the diaphragm, the, the harder it 
it gets to control that boominess. This is also why I like this this sort of compromised medium diaphragm size that I have. Um, I find it's quite easy to control the proximity effect and keep it from getting you know out of out of hand. I'm going to talk about this more in a little bit, but um, I got the chance to compare the Edwina to a KMS 105 uh, on a few different instruments. And I noticed that on the KMS at the this at um, this place that I work occasionally called Freight and Salvage here in Berkeley, I often have to roll off the low end uh, a couple of dB, so it's not too boomy. But I didn't have to do that as much with the Edwina, so that's a small difference. That I mean, and that's interesting too, because I mean the the one hundred five is is certainly designed for uh, very similar kinds of applications. But those are you know those are just choices that that you make as a as a designer. Well, let me let me go ahead and play a couple of examples right now because I made a short recording yesterday mm-hmm. um, while I was at Freight and Salvage. So I set up an Edwina right next to a KMS one hundred five on their grand piano, and uh, I know this podcast comes out as an MP three, but I'm going to go ahead and play audio from the recording, and I won't tell you which one they are yet. So the first one is the Neumann, and the second one is the Ear Trumpet Labs. And now that you know which they are, I'm going to play them again. much all I'm going to say I think about the sound quality because I feel like there's no such thing as a bad mic. They're just tools and and some are good in some cases and others you choose for other jobs. Um, in this particular case, I chose the Edwina on this show because uh, once I compared them, I felt like there was a quality in the attack of the hammers on this piano that sounded really clear in the Edwina. So I went with that one. Good choice. Thank you. (laughs) So let's talk about miking vocals. Yeah. I feel like you have something to say about this because the standard practice of using a dynamic mic like an SM58 comes from the idea that since the capsule of a dynamic microphone is slower to react in the condenser, then it will provide some more gain before feedback and usually be more forgiving to vocal imperfections. I think most technicians experience that to be true and get in the habit then of always choosing a dynamic mic just to be on the safe side. So can you talk about some of the other variables I should be considering when choosing a vocal mic? Well, sound quality. <laughs> um, <laughs> I'm, not, I'm not positive that I agree with the thesis that, that a dynamic mic is slower. I'm not no? even quite, quite sure what that means. You can analyze the performance of a mic through the through the frequency response, and uh, you know if if the frequency response extends into the high frequencies, it's I mean that's the the speed that it can respond at. 
that said, I mean, dynamics do often have a have uh, less high frequency response, very high frequency response than than many than many condensers. Um, as I talked about before, especially small diaphragm condensers will have a will have a very extended high frequency. Um, so to that extent, that's sort of true. Well, I, I always understood that dynamic microphones have a thicker membrane, and they need that because. Um, it's yeah, all they're, they're moving. Yeah, they yeah, have to they're move moving that this heavy coil past that micro magnet. Yeah, yeah, past the magnet, and um, and so the bad thing is, is that then that makes them less detailed because the membrane is thicker. But the good thing is, is that that less detail then can um, make sometimes make vocals sound better and also not feed back as quickly since they're less sensitive. Yeah, that's. I, I, I guess that is. You don't think that's always that is, true, though. That's that's not all true. Um, you know, the thing is they compensate. The, the the design of a dynamic mic is really complex acoustically, much more complex than a, than than a condenser capsule. As I described earlier, it's really you know incredibly simple. Um, a dynamic mic is is uh, mechanically uh, a really complicated thing because um, in order to compensate for that which you just described. They basically set up a whole bunch of different resonances, resonance chambers within the the capsule body itself that are really carefully tuned that kind of add up and add up and add up to give an approximation of a relatively flat response. The the innate response of that diaphragm and moving coil um, is inherently very peaky, and so then they they add all of these resonances around that peak to to try and smooth out the response. It, it's it's you know it's much more like a speaker. Um, I mean, it really the a dynamic mic is you know uh, you probably know basically the speaker in reverse, mm-hmm. um, and suffers from those same issues I mean, from having to move that much mass. Um, you know, speakers in speaker design and. Sure, you know. I mean, resonance is the is the big design issue that you've got to try and kind of overcome. And similarly with dynamic capsules, you know what I find with most of the standard dynamic designs is that the the real reason that they're easier to use, uh, or that most people find them easier to use in in loud environments, is simply that they're they really are designed and, and encourage only using them from very, very close distances. I mean, a 58 uh, sounds sickeningly awful if you're, you know, more than three inches away from it. <laughs> it, just, it just does. If you look at the response the, uh, of a 58, first off, don't look at the published ones, but if you, if you look at actual, um, the actual response curves, they're, they're, that presence boost, um, or the whole high-end boost is is enormous at the distances wow. that you're actually using it from uh, I, I have no idea what I'm not sure that sure even actually publishes a, a, a curve for it but you see them sometimes and if anything they they must be done from a, a much larger distance than you would ever actually use them from in my own testing there you know that that high frequency bump is is huge it's you know it's like 10 DB Wow from the same distance, the proximity effect is also enormous. So you get this huge smiley curve. And that basically is the sound of a, of a 58. 
Um, I don't think most engineers realize how absolutely extreme that is. And that's the reason that they only sound decent from very, very close is because you have to have that proximity effect boost to, to, to counterbalance the incredible thinness that, that you get from the top end of the smiley. You put the two of them together, not natural sounding, but um, kind of balanced. <laughs> That's sort of the magic of the 58 is, is just simply that it forces everyone so close to it. We tell everyone now when using that kind of mic, and especially a vocalist, you know, get as close as possible, put your lips right on it. And yep. that's what I learned when I started getting into live audio. But it sounds like you're saying that's that's just because that's the way that mic is built. And then I guess probably other people build mics to function like that as well. But I mean, that's not always the way you should use a microphone. Right, exactly. tried to come up with different ways, but as close as I can tell, doing my own testing and checking, I, I believe that my microphones have at least as good or better actual gain, overall gain before feedback, um, as say a 58. That the whole reason that you want to use a condenser is to have decent sound, and you're going to get the best sound quality, typically from a, from a somewhat greater distance. There's no microphone that's gonna sound great when you're kissing it mm -hmm. so you you know you you want to use a nice condenser mic and you uh you know that you're gonna get the best sound from three to six inches and that's just a much harder more difficult place to to get usable gain on a really loud stage on a moderately quiet stage you know that's quite achievable um with most mics and so but I, I don't know if you understand what I'm saying so the different I think people there's just a difference in expectations from the usage of a mic where you're trying to get good vocal quality the 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 demand for actual gain that you're that you're asking for is significantly higher than what you're asking out of a 58 yes. uh, that difference from three to six inches is you know on 6 dB it's like we have to use the microphone in a special way now to make it sound good. To whereas other yes. microphones already sound good um, and you don't have to do anything special with them, but it's the really high amount of feedback rejection that you can get when you use uh, an SM58 that has made it popular. Well, it's the, it's the feedback rejection that you get simply by... Ha by having so little gain mm -hmm. that you're working from one inch away. Very, there are very few mics um, that you couldn't get plenty of gain, even for a pretty loud stage on, if you're willing to go up and, and kiss the mic. It's just that most mics don't actually sound good, and you wouldn't want to do that. And even, you know, even with my mic designs, I've been, I've been pushing this as much as I can um, because on reasonably loud stages, you, you just, there's just no way around it. You have to get close, um, and so I'm 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 working to try and make my mics also sound reasonably good from that close. But there's there's really no question that you lose some of the the real qualities that you wanted out of using 
a condenser mic to begin with. You're also just going to lose it just by virtue of the, the of everything being so loud that you can't really hear it anyway. Well, tell me if this is right. It sounds like you're advocating for higher quality sound in live sound applications, and mm-hmm. and it sounds like you want people to sort of change their attitudes from letting everything be as loud as possible and um, close, super close miking everything on stage to, hey, we can get better quality if we lower the stage volume and mic things from a little bit farther away to where microphones naturally sound good um, and then try to work with that instead of highest possible volume being uh, the most important factor. Yes, exactly. And, okay. and that does... that. To, to switch to that approach, um, you do need to use some different mics. Uh, again, because those, the 57s, or 58s in particular, and 57s to a certain extent also, they just don't sound good from a distance. So that, you know, they're, they're, they're forcing you, they're sucking you in closer to the mic than you need to be. Mm-hmm. Now, all of this, obviously, there's a huge variety of uh, kinds of artists and kinds of sound out there. And that's, that's maybe my, my biggest issue. You know, absolutely. You know, uh, 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 you know, I love a loud band as much as the next guy, um, and there are plenty of them for whom, you know, a, a dynamic mic is absolutely right. It sounds fine. Um, there are some dynamics that sound amazing, depending on the singer and depending on the vocalist and all of that. And if they really are, uh, you know, if it's a loud band and they have really, that's part of the the sound then by all means, that's a fine answer. But there are also lots and lots and lots of other bands and musicians of all stripes out there. Um, not surprisingly, you know, the, probably the biggest users of my mics so far are acoustic musicians. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's, you know, they, they, they pay more attention to sound quality. They're, they're more apt to be frustrated by the sound that, that they get out of um, regular dynamics and you know, because they realize that they have absolutely no need to be close miking like that. I mean, if you're playing an acoustic guitar and singing, there's absolutely no reason for you to be kissing a fifty-eight. I mean, it's just silly, you know. And yet, that remains the default. Well, Philip, you're definitely changing the way I think about miking vocals on a stage. So hopefully, uh, <laughs> change some other minds out there. <laughs> Good. Where have you heard some really good sound in Portland recently? Uh, Nowhere. No, actually, <laughs> no. I, I'm. Just, it's more of a choosing between kind of a thing. Oh, I, good. I think we okay. have a. Yeah, I think we have a great. Uh, we have a, a really great sound infrastructure <laughs> or uh, music infrastructure here, and uh, uh, Mississippi Studios is is one of my favorite venues. It. it uh, Often sounds stunning and rarely sounds awful. What uh, uh, what do you think contributes mostly to that? Is it the staff or is it the room or anything in particular? It, yeah, it's both. Um, it's both. It's a it's a nicely done room, um, and the, and the staff is generally is generally great, and they appreciate the room and 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 it's always mostly the staff or the sound person. But you know, it's it, it's funny. I I mean I. I'm not a live sound guy myself, but um, I spend a lot of time hanging with them to learn what they go through mm-hmm. um, and working with them. And you know, uh, 
uh, you know, doing shows with them when they're when they're testing out my mics and things like that. I, I assume you've experienced this, the, the universal compliment after the show when people kind of come bobbing over to the sound guy and are like, this is a really great sounding room, man. This is, that, <laughs> that was amazing. And this, you know, and they're just, yeah, yeah, yeah. It's, I, it's I, all the room. <laughs> I think it's funny that you say that because my experience is usually the opposite, that people think it's me and I always think they're wrong. I always think that, you know, I'm working at a nice place, and so it's great. People think it's me. Sure, I'll take the compliment. I'm working at a crappy pay- place, and people are complaining, and they think it's me. And I'm, I'm like, that's fine, <laughs> whatever. You know, I feel like I'm just turning up mics a lot of the time and, uh, you know, putting out yeah. fires. People see the person controlling the machines, and they think that, you know, it's all them. It's been really interesting. I mean, I, I have an enormous amount of sympathy for, for sound guys, it's actually been very interesting doing the microphone business because uh, I deal pretty much equally with artists and sound guys. That's been really eye-opening and very entertaining. <laughs> There's a podcast that's going to come out right before this one where I do an interview with John Huntington. And I'll just go ahead and recommend this again. He published um, a talk that he did at, I think, City Tech in, in New York City called Perfect Sound or um, There Is No Such Thing as Perfect Sound, something like that. But in Mm -hmm. that talk, he spends a lot of time really outlining uh, what the sound engineer's job is and all the parties that they're responsible for and all of the factors that can go into the sound quality that you experience at a show. And it's really a long list. And so it's, it's really funny then... Um, or, I don't know, funny, but always interesting how people interpret their experience to be because of whatever factors they can see or hear, whatever they think it might be. It's, it's, right. it's different for everyone. But yeah, really, really interesting phenomena. Most of the good sound guys that I know, they, they all talk about the book that they want to write. <laughs> 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 that, that's, um, that's explaining... To, to the world in general and to artists in particular, like <laughs> what how they should behave <laughs> and um, what you know what goes into uh, actually doing decent sound. Club sound in particular is it's an incredibly isolating job too mm-hmm. in a lot of ways because uh, if you're doing club sound, you're you're always the only one there who's who's doing that, whose job it is, and and you rarely even run into the other sound guys, even if they, you've got multiple ones. You don't typically go and hang out with other sound guys. Yeah. I'm sure it's different working a big crew. Um, no, and that's that's one of my favorite things about when I used to work in, I used to be on staff in a theater, and that was one of the best jobs I ever had just because there was actually a team of people, and you had uh, yeah, people who, who knew who what the hell you, you were talking about. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Or if only there was something like a podcast for <laughs> live sound people. I don't know. That's it's a crazy community thought. Community creating, I don't know. Yeah, thanks. <laughs> uh, well, Philip, um, where is the best place for people to follow your work online? Is it just at your site? Um, yeah, eartrumpetlabs.com. Um, and I'm Facebook to Ear Trumpet Labs. I, to the extent that I have any uh, interesting moment-to-moment topical things, uh, it's probably more likely to show up on, uh, on Facebook. And you got any th- new mics coming out that you want to whet our appetite for? The, the newest mic that I've kind of just finalized the design for, it's called the Chantel. 
um, is just designed to be a little closer to the standard form factor that people are more used to. Um, it's still a, kind of a pretty unique looking mic, but you can you you can put it up and address, and it's not that unlike uh, you know a fifty eight or 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 whatever. And it's also designed. It's really designed for close uh, close vocal miking. I feel a little dumb about this, but um, it's just internally padded down to be closer to the output of a dynamic. Oh. And that is purely, it's not a SOP exactly, but it, 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 that's one of the f- quickest stumbling blocks from inexperienced sound people. Is that they, they just don't realize that a standard condenser's output is hugely hotter than a dynamic. Um, I, I learned a lot of what I know um, about mic building and, and circuits from a couple of online communities, if you will. So if people are at all interested, um, there's a mic builders forum on, uh, it's a Yahoo forum of all things. It's probably been there forever that has some fantastic, really fantastic audio engineers on it um, that have you know, worked for major manufacturers, a lot of them, and, and you know, a, a whole crew of uh, DIY types. Sound design. Hey, 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 this is Nathan. Thanks for listening to the show. If you've enjoyed this episode of Sound Design Live, rate it, rate it. on iTunes or send it to a friend. Make believe it came. I'll make believe it came from.